I believe that aesthetics is a form of respect. And I'm not saying mm -hmm. that it has to be beautiful, pretty, elegant. It's about aesthetic intention. It can be punk, it right. can be whatever you want, but just it's a form of respect to give it enough attention. So I think that the opposite of beautiful is not ugly, but rather indifferent or lazy. That's Paola Antonelli. She's the Museum of Modern Arts Senior Curator in the Department of Architecture and Design, as well as the Director of R&D at the Museum. So on this episode of Art Movements, we'll be talking to her about her work and vision, but we also discuss an arts organization that we both believe in, and one that's marking its 20th anniversary this year, IBEAM. Paola Antonelli is the featured keynote speaker at the iBeam Benefit this month. And I visited her at MoMA's Midtown studio to talk to her about all things iBeam, design, and curation. I started by asking her about her inspirations. I was dying to know what motivates her as a leader in the field of curation design and understanding how the online world is changing our lives. What inspires me is a deep passion for design and the belief that it comes in so many different forms. Mm -hmm. And frankly, I say design, but then it doesn't really matter if one is an artist or a designer or a scientist because, you know, there was another exhibition in 2008 that was called Design and the Elastic Mind, right. where there were designers and architects next to scientists that couldn't really understand why they were there, but mm -hmm. then once they were there, they felt really at home. So what inspires me is the idea of taking all these stray cats and dogs and put them in one place where all of a sudden they feel at home. And actually, it's their home and nobody else's. So the idea of giving validation to people from many different fields that feel that they don't have yet a larger community, or at mm -hmm. least that they don't have... Um, the acknowledgement of a major institution. See, mm. I'm really lucky. I'm at MoMA. Power and MoMA go together and authority. <laughs> Let's be frank, right? right? And there's nothing more exhilarating than to give this power to uh, designers and scientists and, uh, and geeks and, uh, and nerds that don't really feel like they are taken seriously by the world. Right. Maybe that's it. It's just that wonderful feeling. And also the fact that there's so much fabulous work that does not fit neatly in the drawers that are already available. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, so we're going to be talking about iBeam today. Yes. And just to kind of give a little sense for listeners who may not know, you helped shepherd the first website for MoMA. Isn't that correct? Or the bigger or yeah. the bigger site? No, it was not big at all. It was <laughs> 1995. I came to MoMA in 94, so I've right. been here 25 years. And uh, in 95, I curated my first show that was called Mutant Materials in Contemporary Design. And I wanted a website. Mm -hmm. But... Nobody really knew what a website was, and so <laughs> Momo was like, um, okay, um, here's $315, and then really? nobody wanted— Yes, yes, yes. Wow. So I— Did uh, they empty their pockets of change and put a pilot on the table? I don't know tell you, but I, I can only tell you <laughs> that I went to SVA, and a graduate student taught me HTML, and so I'm— wow. I, I, coded it and it's horrible it's still there but it's horrible fantastic right because it's really html with a little thumbnail pictures 
I did it all by myself with her help. How did so, you do that? Because, you know, we started Hyperallergic in 2009. Sorry, by the by the way, her name is Adrienne Wurzel. Right now, she's a very, very serious artist, you know, Amazing. so, but she's the one that helped me out, yes. That's great. <laughs> well, you know, we started in 2009, and even then, particularly in the art community, people were still poo-pooing websites. You know, there was this idea that it was maybe a pad, not maybe not passing fad, but it felt like sort of lowbrow. It felt like there was a lot of disparaging of the online world. I can't imagine in 1995, what was the reaction? I didn't feel any disparagement, just okay. perplexity. And, you know, there were other curators. There was Barbara London here at MoMA. Oh, right. She was also a pioneer. Oh, yeah. So I did the first website, and that was June, I think. Mm -hmm. And then immediately after, she did a website herself for her own exhibition. And then there were others. Cheryl Conkelton did hers. And uh, then MoMA constructed a website. But Barbara was also the first to use the blog medium, right? Mm. She was doing these great trips in China and Japan, and she would blog about them. So I don't understand why anybody was perplexed to me. It was instantly a documentation medium. So right. uh, what I always did with websites all the way until items, because at that point, the MoMA website has changed. But for every exhibition, I made sure that there was a website with bells and whistles, but also the whole checklist. So that was a way to really document the exhibition. And to this day, right. you can go to the Mutant Materials website and you have the checklist of everything that was in it. So to me, it was just a no-brainer. Hmm. But also, there was this feeling that the content was the important matter and that it should be able to migrate in different containers. And the problem is that so many of my best websites, like Design and Elastic Mind, are in Flash. Got it. So I really wish someone <laughs> designed software to move things out of to free people, free websites right, right. from Flash. I still love the Flash, but what was your model? There like, was no model. There was only the desire to make this available to a wider public because I had a feeling that that would be the case yeah. and to have a documentation, a complete documentation of the exhibition's content. At that time, it was not easy to put images yet, mm -hmm. but there was the checklist. So, record, you know, record right. and dissemination. So, mentally, were you thinking catalog? Were you thinking book? Because, you know, you kind of imagine sometimes a website like how would it because yeah. there weren't models to follow no I always felt um, in, at that point there were a few models like Ada Web and a few others Got but it. I always felt that when you tackle an exhibition you have three different spaces mm -hmm. one is the gallery space and in that case it's sequential with some doors into other dimensions but it's quite constricted then you mm -hmm. have the catalog that's the most constricted of all right. sequence right? right and then you have the website or you have the internet whatever that is a website or social media and it used to I used to think about it as a full-fledged space mm. now it's not like that anymore because I feel that social media are not spaces they are impulses I still have to find the right architectural metaphor but all the way to talk to me mm -hmm. which is maybe the last exhibition website that I did really as a separate project all the way to that I felt that the space online was another type of space that also could use architectural savvy mm -hmm. and that's why during the uh, during the crisis in 2008 more than one architectural office opened a division that did interfaces and online spaces and they were great so smart 
Got it. Yeah, I can go on forever. But <laughs> um, so three spaces. To me, the website right. was always different, and it was for record and dissemination. So fast forward 1999, iBeam is established. Mm -hmm. And what was your first experience with iBeam? Do you remember when it was? I, I never remember the first. I, okay. It's so funny, you know, like, I don't remember where I met you first, but it's it's as if you had always been in my life, right? So same thing with iBeam. It's always been in my life, even though there must be one day right. in Chelsea that I, I saw the, the gate go up and down. <laughs> um, so I don't remember, but I felt home right away. Hmm. I felt home the way that I had always felt at the Media Lab or ITP. ITP, by the way, let's not take for granted that everybody right. knows, sure. is at NYU at New York University. And it's a special interactive telecommunications program that had a wonderful founder, Red Burns, and so the same kind of hybrids, aliens, you know, artists, technologists, sometimes designers. If anything, the good thing about iBeam is that it had more designers. Right. Because, see, when art and technology come together, the results are interesting, but not the perfect pitch that I'm always seeking, which is a pitch that also goes into the world and becomes either a product or an interface. iBeam had more designers. Mm. So I remember... Um, this is, I had already been there for a while, but I remember when in about 2007, I met um, Ayab Dare and Jessica Banks that mm -hmm. were amongst the artists there. And then, you know, Ayab Dare then became the founder of Little Bits of the Company and Jessica Banks of Rock Paper Robot. And they were part of Designing the Elastic Mind leading up. So that's maybe the culmination of this interest. But I remember that I used to go to all of their, all of their presentations anytime I could. Yeah, and for those that may not know, I mean, iBeam had this sort of warehouse-like garage space in, mm -hmm. in Chelsea, and it had this sort of vibe that felt kind of really vibrant. You know, at least that's the way I experienced it. How did you first kind of understand its role in the ecosystem? Because I feel like we all play different roles in a much bigger ecosystem. Yeah, and you know, I'm, I'm not from here, so that kind of culture, the garage culture, that's typically Californian, but that kind of warehouse right. culture in New York was new to me when I arrived in 1994 and always a surprise. Mm -hmm. So the way I saw it in the ecosystem was I had more than an incubator, it was a generator almost, you know, mm -hmm. it had this energy and and it was much more electrical than, than like a nurturing machine mm -hmm. that develops newborns. So there were residencies and uh, that was also a new concept because you don't really have residencies in Italy, while they are such an important pillar of the way culture is developed here in the United States. And that maybe has to do also with the importance of private funding mm. for the arts. You know, coming from Italy, everything is funded by the state. But because of that, there's... Um, there's a sort of a sort of intellectual laziness. You don't expect to have to go to an incubator or, or right. a generator. You know, something will happen. You just let things happen to you more. And uh, to me, iBeam was a symbol or a testament of this kind of private 
enterprise. Like I couldn't really understand what it was. Then I found out it was one person that had funded it. And I was like, really? That's amazing. Uh, then I met the guy. You know, it's just so, it, it was fascinating because it was all about passion and right. the opposite of laziness. Right, right, right. right. That's so why they were I say upstarts, generator. Right? They were like upstarts Absolutely. really at the end of the day. And I think sometimes European sort of uh, the state funded model can often rely on things like seniority and other things. Yes, you know, true. That sort of mm -hmm. like plays a different role, particularly with state funding. Uh, you know, so everything has its role, but, you know, there are certain advantages, I guess, to these kinds of models. Absolutely. And they're all about, first and foremost, an individual just really putting all of her or his energy. Forget the money. It's not always about money. Right. It's like energy and vision That's in right. it, you know, whether it's Nicholas Negroponte, Red Burns, you know, so, and then um, the passion draws people in and kind of selects the best, you know, something happens organically when there's so much passion at the beginning. So that's how I always saw iBeam. I then asked her about her role as a tastemaker in the field. I knew that term would get a bit of a reaction. I know you don't like that term, but I do think you are a tastemaker. I'm going to label you one. You're not going to label yourself. Okay. <laughs> it's all right. We can duke it out. You can tell me why that's not doesn't work, but I'm going to say that. Now, what is the role of an institution like MoMA when, like, seeing these projects? As a curator, seeing these projects and sort of understanding how you can maybe help develop them, understand them, see how they fit in, conceptualize them as a part of a bigger picture. Mm -hmm. How do you do that? Well, there are many different ways to do it. And, you know, I could go through the work of many colleagues of mine that work on it in a different way. From my viewpoint, the reason why I kind of recoil when you tell me tastemaker is because I try, as a curator, very firmly, I try not to tell people what's good and what's bad, but rather to help them sharpen their own critical tools. That's, I think, the best, best thing that I can do. Because it's MoMA, we tend to show positive examples of design, not negative. But then, you know, online, when I did the Design and Violence project, that right. was also negative. But So I try to show positive examples of design mm -hmm. so that people can form a paragon of what they should uh, expect, not even aspire to, but expect. I would like citizens to become more powerful and critical citizens, to push back when things are not acceptable, whether aesthetically or morally. And I say aesthetically because I believe that aesthetics is a form of respect. And I'm not saying mm -hmm. that it has to be beautiful, pretty, elegant. It's about aesthetic intention. It can be punk, it right. can be whatever you want, but just... Um, it's a form of respect to give it enough enough uh, attention. So I think that the opposite of beautiful is not ugly, but rather indifferent or lazy. Good point. You know, so yeah. so that's what I feel that I do. And there are other curators that work in this kind of direction. Then there are curators like Juliet Kinchin, my colleague in architecture and design, who does mostly historical design. She shows the politics of the past, and they become almost metaphors for the politics of the present. You know, we're many curators here at MoMA are seriously political all the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I feel that that's really 
the best. When you see exhibitions that are at the same time Matisse and Simon Denny and Trisha and um, you know collective shows about design and the communication between people and objects. So you have this kind of universe of various ways in which art, design and a museum can help you live life. That's really the aspiration. Oh my God, I just love the way you said that because now I'm fantasizing mm -hmm. of like what the perfect museum is to contain all these things. So now, how did you see iBeam change over the years? How have you seen it sort of evolve? Because it's had in many ways, many lives. They used to do everything from like fairs to like they do residencies, you know, all these. What's well, your take? Yeah, but residencies, I always make it coincide with residencies because somehow that's always how I envisioned it. And the fairs, of course, happened. But I always think of the end of year show as if it were Right. school almost and I always think of the hosted shows that's to me the image of I being because probably that's when I went the most mm -hmm. and uh, and then along the years ever since it left Chelsea it's been trying to find itself right and that is a complicated position to be in but also an interesting position to be in so yeah. I feel that now it's at that moment. It's trying to decide whether to be completely immaterial or whether to go back into some making culture. Uh, and just so whether it, to, to tackle only art or to really throw itself into design. I hope that iBeam will embrace this um, hybridity, although it's a little easy to say it uh, while we're doing you know, a talk and a podcast, and instead it's much more complicated when you have to actually uh, balance a budget and find mm -hmm. the money and so on and so forth. But this hybridity and openness, it, it's the future. Right. I see it in so many different fields. Last night we had one of the R&D salons here, mm -hmm. And it was about work. And one of the speakers was Angela Di Maguia, uh, who is now the creative director of food and experience. I mean, something like that, the title, at the Standard Hotels. Mm -hmm. But she was talking about the queering of all different spaces, this idea of hybridity and openness as the way for something, for even a chain of hotels like the Standard to be. So right. it's not easy. I mean, the standard decided to decided to hire Angela and to create that kind of title for her. Can some institutions that find themselves light for a moment because they've had uh, a complicated few years, etc., right. could they use their lightness to dive into this new ocean? Right, the flexibility. I mean, I think the institutional history of IBEAM also it really sort of charts a little bit of the creative history of New York in the last 20 years. You know, mm -hmm. even like this idea of finding a purpose again and then reconfiguring and reconfiguring again yes. and finding a space that works and doesn't work and experimenting. Absolutely. Do you know? And it's like all these, I mean, Chelsea being the, you know, sort of the incubator for a while. Now it's changed completely. Now, now it's, it's everything downstairs for me. By the <laughs> way, I, mis I, I, mis I misspelled Angela's last name it's Dima Yuga okay I always do it's like oh. it's, it's but, yeah, yeah now everybody's downstairs from uh, Broadway and Walker that's, that's right. I've been living that's for 15 right. years, and now it's becoming the cool gallery spot. I'm like, well, okay. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Absolutely. Are there any other projects, IBM projects, you think really sort of really show some of the, you know, the famous example people often bring is with the incubator that became Huffington Post and some of these other sort of projects and mm -hmm. like the whole idea of going viral and sharing and the sharing culture, mm -hmm. which, I mean, is ubiquitous now. Yes, definitely. And was kind of incubated a little bit at IBM. 
Maybe. Yeah. No. There are know? many other many other things. Somehow, yeah. I always I always think of physical um, when I think of IBM, but definitely Half Post is a very good example. I'm also thinking of Rock Paper Robot, even right. though it hasn't become a big company yet. It's the most amazing furniture that is all based on impeccable engineering and that it's dynamic. And now Jessica is at New Lab, which mm-hmm. is another super interesting place. And the Half Post for sure. And I'm sure you know you could make a list of all the other great inventions that happened there. Right. Do you have it? Yeah. Yes. Well, the, the, well, I mean, I just think the sharing thing is something that they don't sharing, get enough. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think now we don't even think of it. It's sort of like how it permeated our culture. You kind of assume that things are being shared every moment. Things are being shared to you on every kind of platform possible, you know, and it's become part of the air we breathe. I mean, sharing culture is now, it's a whole different thing. But it's always interesting to me that organizations like iBeam sort of innovate and really give opportunities for this. But then they sort of disappear from the conversation sometimes. And I'm wondering, what do you think we can do to sort of respect the institutions like iBeam to really, you know, I always say we have to, like, give back a little bit. I'm wondering, as somebody who sort of probably went to iBeam, like myself or yourself, what do you think we can do to really sort of elevate these institutions? Well, it's pretty much what you're doing. You write the history. I'm thinking of another another institution that created our present, Mm -hmm. Xerox PARC, Right. That never was able to make anything become their own product, Mm -hmm. but maybe they didn't even want to, you know, and uh, we can right now enumerate the litany of the amazing innovations from the mouse to the graphic user interface and much more. And uh, what you do is you write the book with their history. So you should write the book with the history (laughs) or, you know, you're doing the podcast, but with the history of iBeam, really documenting it. I I wish they really uh, decided to do that thoroughly and thoughtfully by listing everything that happened in iBeam. Well, that's important. Mm -hmm. So now, how about for you, what would you like iBeam to do that it isn't perhaps doing? I would like it to settle down somewhere so people know where it is. Right. I would like it to to really organize itself so that it can communicate the wonderful things that are happening. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would like it to continue in this particular space. I mean, besides what they had already tackled, you know, digital electronics sharing, etc., right now there's the biodesign aspect. I'm not sure, though, that they necessarily have to tackle that because it would entail you know, building a wet lab. It's not the, u- the right. easiest thing. But it's a big budget no, to build a lab. I know, <laughs> but there are other institutions that have the wet lab and might not have the, the amazing network of alumni and of uh, and the echo that iBeam has in the art and design and technology community. So... I can see really alliances and much more amplified, loudspoken mm-hmm. kind of activity. So now I think there's been a lot of conversation about ethics and the internet, and you know even technology and the internet. Uh, sorry, ethics and technology, I mm-hmm. should say. What is the role for people who may not know? How have you seen the role of ethics enter this conversation? It's very big. I mean, the first thing that I think about is the AI Now conference that mm. happens every year. That's organized by Kate Crawford and Meredith, you know, at NYU, at the um, you know the school that is about AI and ethics. Last year's edition was amazing with NAACP lawyers, with you know people that talked about privacy, of course, but 
ethics is our compass. If we stuck to a sort of code of behavior, we wouldn't mm -hmm. know where to go as opposed to being completely taken over by technologies if it were a hurricane. So I think that ethics is extremely, extremely important. So how about some of the projects IBEAM is doing, like even including things like painters mm -hmm. that are thinking of painting as technology? Mm -hmm. Is this part of a broader conversation going on? What do you think? You would know better than I do because I'm not so much in the art world. I tend to... I don't to, know. I kind I of... Know. I mean, you're... you're no, I did my foot in the art world when it's about <laughs> politics. That right, right, definitely, right, right, you know, right. but whenever it's not politics. I mean, there's definitely the work of Adi Wagenknecht, for instance, that I really love. Oh, yeah. That deals with technology as art. I mean, it's fabulous what she's done with the Roomba robots and yes. uh, how they have painted this great... I mean, she can do wonders. CCTVs and yes. all these types of things. So, yeah. there are a lot of artists that are definitely mixing technology and art in a wonderful way. I am particularly interested, though, in the work of people like Josh Klein, you know, mm -hmm. that, talk, that talk about technology with wariness and also with hope, because on the one hand, he 3D prints the bodies that almost look like dead bodies of people that have been laid off because of technology, but then he also makes this wonderful commercial for universal basic income in the mm -hmm. future. So... I like artists that reflect on technology, maybe even using technology, but always thinking about it first and foremost. So now let's talk about the economics of mm -hmm. this stuff, because, you know, th that's another thing. Funding is such a big issue now. People are talking about funding, and I think when it comes to technology, there's a lot of conversation about Silicon Valley and how these things get funded and, you know, and the biases that come in there. People get funded often. You know, it's it's white straight men often who, like, you know, are funding other white straight men or something, and there are these biases in it. Now, as a woman in the field, I'm wondering, how has the role of gender and technology changed, or has it? But you're talking about enterprises, companies, Both. you're talking about... I don't think we can separate them. I think it's kind of in the same way that we talk about art and design as sort of not even two sides of the same coin. They're sort of like, yeah. they're connected in different ways. I'm curious, have you seen any of those? It's huge. So yeah. art and design can stay together, but when you talk about companies, then it becomes more complicated because there's an expectation of profit and a kind of disdain mm -hmm. of art and design in Silicon Valley that makes it so that it's still very much a bro culture. And, you mm. know, I mean, we can read books uh, forever. There are many women that are dealing with it. So I think there's a very big difference between Silicon Valley and, say, Los Angeles and the East Coast, for instance, right. Right. Where, where technology is valued as a means for creativity, whether it's in the Hollywood industry or, the, or in video games or on YouTube, or as art that can also become part of the market. So... Gender is a huge, huge discussion. There is still a problem, a gender issue, and it has not gone away. The, the R&D salon before work was white male. <laughs> And, uh, and it was really super interesting because there are so many issues. It's not only the platitude about, oh, white male is not a monolithic group. There's also the nuance instead of why should it not be considered a monolithic group since everybody, every other group has been stereotyped for right. history. So it's fascinating. 
But the truth is, technology is feminized a lot. There was that great Jill Lepore article in The New Yorker a few months ago that talked about the fact that even though women are underpaid or not paid when it's domestic labor, still robots sell better if they have a feminine voice, right? So there's a lot going on here. There There are big revolutions that are on the horizon and that go well beyond me too. There's the sense of value of labor versus work. Mm-hmm. Uh, last night, the work salon, there were great discussions about invisible work that is not remunerated, but is 40% or more of the GDP of countries like India, right? Wow. So intellectual labor, oh my God, don't get me started. Emotional labor. (laughs) Emotional labor. No, but it's really fascinating. So when all this will be discussed at a deeper level, I think that the gender issue will be rolled into it. And I don't think will be solved, but it definitely will evolve. Until then, I see it as too too argumentative and dialogic. You know, you can go Mm. on till kingdom comes, but The truth is that until we change our value, we won't be able to change our modalities and behaviors that easily. You can regulate, you can legislate, but that doesn't stay skin deep. So are there any things on that topic or adjacent to that topic that make you hopeful? I want to show you something. Uh, Ah. You cannot see it in the podcast, but what I'm showing right now is an image that was in my Instagram that represented the opening of the Furniture Fair of Milano, so the biggest design happening in the world. Oh, wow. And these are nine men, nine white men in blue suits cutting the ribbon. And even blue suits. Blue suits. As if nothing were happening, right? right? Like everything is fine and jolly and dandy. Let's smile and be happy. And when several women, myself included, posted out Outraged about this, the only person that responded is the one in the center. That's the mayor of Milan. Right? So <laughs> well, to apologized. be fair, there are different shades of blue. Yes. <laughs> so this is still what is going on, and what gives me hope is very simply that at least one of those nine men wrote and apologized. And Italy is one of the most conservative and kind of fossilized countries when it comes to the uh, invisibility of the issue. What makes me really happy are people that I see all the time, especially in New York, like Angela, like Josh, people that celebrate queer culture and even without saying queer, that people that are just very happy to be in their skin, even though they are not between quotes normal anywhere right. else. And what makes me really hopeful is the curiosity that I see for human beings, for each other. I developed this theory about New York that it's a city of dogs because people are so curious about each other that if they could <laughs> sniff their butt when they meet they would do it you know now now you know why I was looking forward to this conversation with you it's for images like that so New York makes me hopeful and um, people make me hopeful and also the incredible groundswell of sensitivity around the environment and around other species that I've Mm. seen around make me hopeful even though they also make me desperate I mean I've been seriously um, been feeling really sad. I mean, I, I, I've even cried sometimes reading about species going extinct. 
as much as I yeah. cry about humans becoming yeah. extinct because of poverty, it's it's really. I know the report recently was what a million、oh、a million species no, will be extinct. It's insane in the coming years. I mean, a million.、Mm-hmm. It's unbelievable, right? Yeah. So so that's what I would like Ibim to see more. I would like more, even more of、uh, politics in the in the work. Do you think there is a room for more ecological thinking in design, like thinking of the design in online? Worlds as ecologies, you know. I mean, is that who's thinking about that in that in a really serious way? In your opinion, well,、um, there are many people, especially in the video game industry. I mean, I just did with a great team this the twenty second Triennale di Milano. It's called Broken Nature, and it's、mm-hmm. about restorative design. So finding ways and and behaviors、mm-hmm. to be more respectful mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, towards other species and the environment. One of the strategies there are many strategies: upcycling, recycling, buying less. Blah blah blah, but one of the strategies is digital exile. So the idea, for instance, I'm listening. No, one of the big problems for so many designers that have been trained as product designers is that they think they have to make things, sell them, in order to then you know make a profit and be called designers. This can happen in different ways, also online. Of course, there was the ridiculous but lovely example of Second Life,、right. and it didn't work mostly because it was too similar to First Life, <laughs> very <laughs> filled with crappy things <laughs>、yeah. and and velvet ropes and so on and so forth. But and things we, like terrorism and terrorism, you know, you know everything it mimicked. So when we did Design and Elastic Mind, I had one of the commissions was to. Design an alternative to Second Life, which、mm-hmm. was open to all everywhere, but people could not build whatever they want. They had to go through a committee, <laughs> of course. <laughs> but、um, seriously, living more online and making more online is a way to make a profit, even and,、uh, and you know, and live better and use fewer resources. Of course, it cannot be the only strategy. There have to be so many others. And there are people that do a lot of great work online,、mm-hmm. you know. So it is possible. Right now, I feel that there is a little bit of a disorientation about what online means. Yes. Because social media are fragmenting the experience to such an extent that、um, many artists, designers, and thinkers have to record themselves. Right. To deal with it. And there's sometimes a generational shift. You know, it's、mm-hmm. funny when I talk to art schools sometimes, and I ask, and they go, "Oh, you know, I read your stuff." And I was like, "Great. Do you get the newsletter?" They go, no, no, no. I just follow you on Instagram. Yeah, of course. Or I follow no, no. you on Twitter. Yeah. And and I'm like, really? That's reading? Like, you know, is that your form? I mean, and it is a form of reading. Of course it is. But it's just you wonder because that language isn't something necessarily I would use to say I'm reading you. Yeah. Do you know? And I think、yeah. there's like definitely those sort of shifts happening too. Yeah, but then there's also a resurrection of the long form. Right. Absolutely. I don't know if it's the kids that do the long form though. Well,、know? I think there's definitely a revival of the personal blog too. And TikTok you know? is really. Oh,、too. I love TikTok.、Yeah. You know, even though I I wouldn't be able to publish to post on TikTok, I just don't have it. But I like to follow and.、Uh And it's fascinating. It's、know? one of my nighttime pleasures. <laughs> you know, I'm going to be honest. I go through, and you're like, "Wow, I'm at a Tibetan monk's, you know, doing doing a TikTok." And I'm at, you know, some kid in Kansas. You know, I'm all、yeah. these places. They really feel transforming, and then all these other、yeah. things. So, but for instance, you could consider design and violence a digital exile. I mean, I, I、hmm. consider online. 
a great curatorial tool. Right. So mm -hmm. can we just define that digital exile a little? Because I think yeah. I get it, but I'm not quite understanding, I guess, some of the contours of that. Okay. Everything that we do, um, even when we're super careful, mm -hmm. has an impact. There's mm -hmm. also a concept like embodied energy that I really love, which means calculating the energy uh, necessary to produce anything, starting at the source, like mm -hmm. mining the material and so on and so forth. So maybe if we really want to be more careful about how we use resources, there are some things that we do that we could do more online. The simplest and most universal idea is using less paper, right? Uh, just not printing that everybody will understand. Right. But there's so much more, you know, there's right. so much more. You can save energy even by doing your banking online so you don't take the taxi. It just... All of these, these are very easy and common forms of digital exile. Then you can go deeper into it. Of course, you don't want to become the little Japanese kid that never leaves the house. Right. <laughs> but there's a lot that can be done online, even though well, it's, a, it's a little bit like universal basic income. If you do a lot of it online, then you can devote your time in the physical world, in RL, in real life, to right. social interaction. So why do you think iBeam chose you to speak at the 20th anniversary? Well, because they know that I'm a groupie. <laughs> I've been there forever. I mean, sooner or later it had to happen. They said, she's always here. Let's just do something about it. <laughs> well, but more than a groupie. I mean, you, they, you, must, you must see that they consider you a thought leader in the field. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. No, I, we, we like each other. We, we, right. We've sniffed each other. <laughs> we like each other. So what does it mean then to sort of have have this senior role of of sort of, I mean, I don't know, what, what do we call you? The chief rabbi of the design Ooh. and, and uh, like, architecture and, and art nice. sort of like, I mean, I don't know what to call, but, you know, I'm curious. Well, what does it mean? I'm happy to have that role because I think that I have good messages to impart mm -hmm. because I believe in politics and because I believe in the political role of, insti of cultural institutions like MoMA or like iBeam, mm -hmm. I feel that at this particular strange moment, any pulpit that's given to me, I can use well. Mm. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. I have opinions that can be um, accepted or rejected and even the rejection is a good, is a good shaking of the tree. So maybe that's what I can say. I'm happy to be able to give people some sense of uh, direction. You have your finger on the pulse. Always do. I try, yeah. You mm -hmm. always do. What is the pulse telling you right now? The pulse is telling me that it's a very, very interesting moment. I am always surrounded, by the way, by great people that work with me. And so they have the finger on the pulse and then they transmitted to me and I see in them and in the audience that comes to the salons and everything just this desire to be involved in the real world. I have mm -hmm. a feeling that in the next elections there will be a higher percentage of voters and not just because people are not happy with the president just in general. Mm -hmm. I think that people are fired up by everything that's happening. You've heard before many times um, comparisons made of today with the 1970s mm -hmm. for good and for bad. You know, because right. of the uncertainty and because of the tragedies that surround us. 
and also because of the you know, artists and designers, intellectuals work better when they have something to work for and against. Right. And the so, paradigm shift. Yes. You know, it, I mean, I think we all feel like we're in the midst of a it's paradigm big. shift, but we don't know where it's going. Well, it's up to us. Yep. And, uh, you know, I wish an economist could find good metrics for the importance of culture mm-hmm. and its relevance and, uh, and role in the bottom line of a society. I wish that the same could happen with values. I mean, they tried to have the happiness index, but it didn't really take root <laughs> with so many of our politicians. But uh, Isn't Bhutan number one yeah, or yeah, something? Yeah, Bhutan. No, Bhutan is the, it's the one that has the index, so it is number one because it's the one that invented it. But it really, it really is a, a bridge that we need to build between the financial and industrial sector and the cultural sector. And in order to do so, we cannot only preach. We have to prove that we can give something also to these sectors. For instance, I believe that we should... The, I believe in B corporations. I am fine with uh, companies making money and becoming socially involved and responsible. You know, so I don't have any problem with uh, making money with profit. I have a problem with uh, unabashed and complete capitalism. Right. So thank you, Paula. Am I gonna? Re- they're gonna take away my visa. I still have a green card. <laughs> it's all right. I still well, have it, a green card. Yeah. So do I. So then they'll take <laughs> both too. of both, both of our visas. That's fine. It's all right. It's like maybe we'll set up shop somewhere else. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you, Paula. This thank was wonderful. You, and I'm sure everybody would look forward to hearing you speak at the IBEAM uh, oh, anniversary you. celebration. I'll prepare. I can't wait. Paula Antonelli will be speaking at the IBEAM anniversary celebration this month, June 18, 2019. It's an event that will celebrate two decades of supporting artists who dream up new visions for our shared future. A special thanks to Newborn Huskies for the music to this week's episode. I'm Hirag Vartanya, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening to this special edition of Art Movements that celebrates 20 years of iBeam, and enjoy your week. <laughs>